I invite you as you're able to rise as we hear the words of the gospel of Christ Jesus our Lord. It's recorded this morning from Luke, the sixth chapter, not the fourth, forgive our error, the sixth chapter, verse 27 to 38. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you, and if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is it to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners. Every sinner lends to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your heavenly God is merciful. This is the word of God, of our Christ Jesus for us. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This morning, I will be sharing with you a sermon, as Shella said, entitled Extremists for Love. A few weeks ago, when I was away in retreat, thinking as we approach Black History Month, what would be good to share with you on this first Sunday? And a book I have is a book full of sermons from the cathedral, the National Cathedral. And I thought, let me kind of look at that and see what I can share from Dr. Samuel T. Lloyd III. And in sharing with the staff just a week or so ago, I said, you know, I'm going to just give that sermon. I'm giving Dr. Lloyd the credit. These are not my words. Because you see, how many of you go home and read books on sermons? (laughs) Exactly. And why should a great sermon not be heard again? So bear with me as I share these words from the National Cathedral and Dr. Samuel T. Lloyd. It's a little dated. You're going to catch that. That's okay. Let's go with that. Will you pray with me? Hide your servant behind the cross of Christ so that only Jesus is heard. Only Jesus is followed. Only Jesus is loved. Amen. It's a surprising thing, isn't it, that a man who died just 39 years ago has a major holiday set aside to honor his life. Here in Washington, they are planning a memorial on the mall to celebrate his life and work. The only person to be honored on our nation's sacred ground who wasn't a president. I would guess that every city and most towns in America have a Martin Luther King Street or Boulevard a king post office, federal building, or high school. With amazing speed, Martin Luther King Jr. has entered the pantheon of the greatest American leaders. And our Episcopal Church remembers him in the sacred calendar as one of the great Christians in the church history. 
With all those accolades, it can be easy to forget just how troubling a figure Dr. King was in his time. I can tell you he was no hero in the white world of the small Mississippi town to which my family moved in 1965. I was in high school then, and there were plenty who hated him. Most of my family saw themselves as moderates, certainly not racist, but not inclined to get involved into the troublesome causes. When King's March came through town in 1965, it might as well have not been happening. It might have been happening in Detroit or in Cleveland instead. Everyone just went about their business, kept their heads down, and waited for it to pass. A friend of mine remembers a more dramatic scene when Dr. King led a march in Columbus, Ohio. There was a fear of potential rioting, and so my friend's father set the night long in the living room of their blue-collar neighborhood house with the lights turned out, a rifle stretched across his lap, ready to protect his family. Dr. King was no hero to him. Martin Luther King was not a comfortable, reassuring figure. Though he was, by all accounts, a courtly, gentle man, as a leader, he was a relentless, provocative disturber of the peace of segregated America. That was an America that I remember well, of signs saying colored and white posted on restrooms and in bus stations, doctor's offices, and theaters. He was always controversial, Many people criticized him for pushing too hard and moving too fast. And on the other side of the civil rights, leaders such as Malcolm X and Stokey Carmichael denounced him for refusing to call for violent revolution. Many saw him as the new Moses, who, as we heard in our first lesson, was called to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt to a new promised land of justice and hope. People saw him as a prophet like Amos and Isaiah, demanding on God's behalf a just society. But for today, the word I want to use for king was one he applied to himself. He believed he was called to be an extremist for love. He quoted frequently Jesus' admonition, I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Pray for those who abuse you. That's extremism. And King actually lived that way. Listen to those words of King that seem almost unimaginably in their courage and resolve. To our bitter opponents we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering to our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. Beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory shall be a double victory. An extremist. That is what he was. A provoker. A visionary. A courageous leader who never stopped teaching the power of touch truth-speaking, justice-making love. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? King once wrote, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? 
Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the gospel of Christ? Was not Abraham Lincoln an extremist? So the question is not whether we will be extremist, but what kind of extremist will we be? Will we be extremists for hate, or will we be extremists for love? The words from one of his most important writings, letters, letter from a Birmingham jail in 1963, King and his colleagues decided to take the movement to the heart of the Confederacy in Birmingham, Alabama, to work for civil and voting rights. They were soon arrested for marching without a permit. A group of liberal American Alabama clergy had published an open letter calling on King for moderation, for him to allow the battle for integration to continue in the courts, and warning him that the movement was going to cause major civil disturbances. They supported his goals, they said, but wished he could wait and be more patient. And so sitting in his jail cell, King wrote a firm, thoughtful letter, free of anger and of bitterness, addressing his critics point by point. For years now, I have heard the word, wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with a piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. I guess it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you've seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, brutalize, and even kill your black brothers and sisters with impunity, when you suddenly find yourself tongue-twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park and see the depressing clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky, and when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. We will have to repent in this generation, he went on to say, not merely for the vitriol words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. For King, patience and moderation were no virtues. After the passing of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, Dr. King, to the dismay of many of his friends and colleagues, began expanding his agenda. He launched the Poor People's Campaign, demanding jobs and decent wages, health care and decent education. And with great controversy, he began to oppose the Vietnam War. On the last Sunday of his life, Dr. King stood in this pulpit and spoke passionately of all these concerns, racism, poverty, and war. Of course, all these problems persist today. I'll never forget an African-American woman in a congregation I served with a young son who was just turning 10 or 11, saying to me with tears in her eyes, I can see it happening. Until now, I've been able to protect my boy from a lot of the terrible messages this world gives him about who he is and as a young black man. But now it's happening. And I'm starting to see the anger, the acting out, 
the signs that he doesn't believe in himself. A few years ago, Cornell West, now the professor of Afro-American studies at Princeton, describes a typical experience of waiting a full hour for a taxi in New York City. While all around him, white individuals were picked up. And he revealed being stopped three times in his first ten days living in Princeton for driving too slowly on a residential street. The burden of race in America is relentless still. In his book, Race Matters, Cornel West said that the fundamental crisis in black America is twofold, too much poverty and too little self-love. And it is overcome not by an argument or an analysis, but by love and care. Racism is both a social evil and a spiritual disease. And the statistics bear out the costly impact of racism on African Americans. More than one-third of black males under 30 are involved in the criminal justice system. One out of two African American children live in poverty, and they are at the bottom of the pile when it comes to education, health care, and hope. Yet somehow, as a nation, we still can't fully commit ourselves to address the toll that America's sins of slavery and racism have taken, not just on our African-American brothers and sisters, but on all of us. I know that as a white American male, I stand here as the beneficiary of centuries of affirmative actions that have given me every chance to build a good life. Can I, can we, not reach out to those who have started so far back in the race and do what we can to give them equal chances? We need Martin Luther King Jr. as much now as ever. We need his holy impatience for justice, his insistence that we not wait, his compassion and passionate commitment to say and do what needs to be done to build more of a just society. We need his call to nonviolence. And in the midst of the war in Iraq today, we need his insistence that our nation find another way than destroy than devastating armed conflict to build peace in the world. Here in the church, we need His clarity that Christ calls us to stand with the poorest in our society, to continue to working of ridding our hearts and this society of racism, to resist the natural tendency to complacency in our privilege. In our time, when churches have spent so much energy fighting internal battles, It is vital to remember a time not long ago when churches stood for something important and played a vital role in creating a more just society. We as a cathedral, each one of us ourselves need to ask, what is God calling me to do? This past week, I visit Cesar Chavez Charter School for the Public Policy located in a struggling neighborhood not far from Capitol Hill. And there I saw Dr. King's dream alive. There were young African-American students being treated with love and dignity and with demanding expectations. Their teachers were mostly bright young idealists, many of them in the Teach for America program. Everywhere in the school was an insistent call to excellence and a spirit of love. And walking around, you couldn't help but sense the hope. That was enough. 
That was enough schools. If there were enough schools like this around the city and across the country, at least some of the ravages of poverty and racism could begin to recede. King's dream seemed possible. I don't often quote Barry Goldwater, the 1964 Republican presidential candidate, but he once uttered a memorable declaration that has stuck with me. Extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice, and moderation in pursuit of justice is no virtue. I regret the safe, privileged moderation that even at my young age kept me and so many in the 1960s safely on the sidelines of the struggle for justice and hope, and often still does. That moderation is, for me at least, no virtue. Let us give thanks to God for Martin Luther King Jr.'s immoderate life and holy impatience. May this extremist for love still inspire and guide us in our work ahead. So said Dr. Lloyd. I say to you, beloved, those who have ears to hear, hear. In the name of the Creator and of the Redeemer and of the Sustainer. Amen.